Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 111 of the Game Podcast. I am your host, Brian Gottlieb. Unfortunately, no Jerry T this week. He is not feeling well. Certainly wish my buddy Jerry the speediest of recoveries. I hope he makes it back as soon as possible. But we might have the next best thing for you this week. We have the voice of the oh, SCG boy. tour. Oh boy, look at this. And, look at you just buttering me up here. And now frequent game podcast contributor, Cedric Phillips. This is uh this is another appearance. This two weeks in a row. Yeah, yeah. I think this, so. This is two weeks in a row, baby. Pretty exciting. A lot of game podcast in your life right now. Not bad for a podcast who you didn't even know how to pronounce just a couple weeks ago. So <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean it's it's very unclear how to pronounce, but I've got it down now. Uh this is this looks like two weeks in a row of me being on the game podcast. What an honor, Jerry. Thank you so much for getting sick because now I get to do this again. And this is, this is just everything I could hope for and more. Your, your listeners are stuck with me for another week instead of someone who's actually good at magic. Sorry, folks. Well, they're used to that with me also being on the cast, so it's okay. There is some conspiracy theories brewing right now. The Game Podcast Discord wants to know, did you and Jerry go out to like any meals or anything this week? Because there's, hmm. there's talk of poisoning, possibly. Like People think you might be gunning for a slot right now. Well, that's a that's an interesting theory. Uh, that is, however, I, I can confirm that that is not the case. Uh, Mr. Thompson actually got sick pre Vancouver, right? Unfortunately for him, so and we didn't, you know, we had dinner like around Christmas time, but you know that was that was almost two weeks ago. Like I think I think we had dinner on on two days before Christmas. That sounds right to me at Maggiano's and. You know, he just got he got some raviolis, so I didn't I didn't do anything there. I promise, folks. Okay, I mean that's temporally close, so I'm concerned. It seems like if you had some kind of slow acting poison, maybe it's still in play. But whatever, we'll let you off the hook for now. We'll let the investigation proceed, and then we can check back in on where things stand. Uh, you mentioned Grand Prix Vancouver. Both you and I were oh, yeah. there this past weekend. How'd your weekend go? I saw you, you know, in and out. We touched base a few times. Did, did you dominate the tournament? Were you successful in your endeavors to requalify for the Pro Tour? I was not. It was a weekend of frustration. I uh, I played in the PTQ on Friday with Ben Yu and StarCityGames.com select author Ryan Sachs. And our decks were not anything special. And we picked up, we went win, draw, lose, I believe. And that basically, you know, you're donezo then. Right. So that took care of that. Uh, that one was Ultimate Masters Team Sealed. Then in the in the GP, everyone said my deck was pretty good. I thought my deck was horrible because it was just 18 creatures and five spells. Now, I did have Golgari Grave Troll. I did have Three Wild Mongrels. Three Wild Mongrels is a nice place to start in this format for sure. So I was pretty happy about that. You know, I had three mongrels. I had the grave troll. Um, I had like a brawn 
And like, I just had a bunch of green and black dummies, like nothing, nothing crazy. I didn't draw grave troll or mongrel all that often. So I can't say I had like any nut draws or anything like that. And then my spells were a last gasp, a snake Undra, snake umbra, a become immense, a prey upon and a spider spawning. So another creature. Yeah. Yeah. So basically if my opponent did a thing, I couldn't win, but if they didn't do a thing, I could win, and that's legitimately how all my games play, where my opponent just, like, is kind of looking at me at the end of the game, and they're just like, I didn't really do anything. I'm like, well, yeah, then you're dead. And then, you know, the game where my opponent cast Blast of Genius three times, I was dead. Yeah, I could see that going that way. Blast of Genius, very powerful spell. Yeah, I thought your deck was fine. I saw it. It was not the pinnacle of power for the format, but it was functional, and I guess just not quite enough to push you over the hump in this instance. I lost playing for day two. I definitely punted the second game playing for day two after I was already down the game. So I was not particularly thrilled with that, but it just wasn't I I don't really know what I was looking for with regards to a sealed deck for that format. I had played a lot of drafts and actually no sealed and they're very different, which I was very cognizant of. Right. And I knew that sealed is definitely, you know, it, you prefer to be aggressive because a lot of these decks like the, the blue red thermal alchemist deck just doesn't really come together in sealed because the packs don't really break that way, but like you can draft it. Right. And same thing with Heroic and a couple other decks. So, like, I, I just, when, when people look to my deck and they're like, this deck is, like, really, really good. I'm like, okay, well, let's pump the brakes. I think this deck is fine. I don't think it's really good. Like, if my opponent does something that is really good, it's like, I can't kill a good creature. Yeah. And, you know? and I think that is a pronounced weakness in the Ultimate Masters format. Not one that people will be playing a lot going forward, so we won't dwell on it too long, but I do think you need like a PowerPoint for your deck. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a big flashy spell. It can be a synergy type PowerPoint, but there has to be something you can look at and say, this feels kind of constructed-ish, cube-ish type power level. And that's what the really good Ultimate Masters sealed decks often look like. I I actually went the other way. I focused pretty hard on sealed decks. And then when I did narrowly, narrowly make day two, I found myself in the draft with basically no idea how to proceed. I had drafted a couple times, but just dropped before I played out the drafts. So I didn't have a really pronounced concept of what exactly was powerful. I ended up drafting a green-white reanimator deck in my first draft of day one. It was a disaster. I never saw a wild mongrel. (laughs) I played poorly in day two as well. So all those things combined to for me to make a quick exit uh, on day two after just narrowly scraping in. But I left the event site and tracked down some raccoons. So honestly, I feel like I'm a winner (laughs) because that's what I was in Vancouver for is just some awesome raccoon action. And I found it, baby. So success. I mean, Vancouver is one of my favorite cities. I got to go to a really good Indian place with a bunch of my friends uh, Friday night. Which one did you go to? So I went in, to an insane one as well. I'm wondering if we found the same spot. Was it near the convention center? No, it was not. It was outside of the city. Okay. I went to a great one near the convention center. So Manny Davuti, who's a uh, Vancouver local, right. who I've known for a while, he kind of organized dinner with like myself and Sam Black and Ryan Sachs, Ben White's, um, couple, uh, Steve Rubin, a bunch of people, like a pretty good crowd. And they decided we were going to go to an Indian place called East is East. Okay. There's two locations and they're both a little bit outside of the city. And my, I had my car with me. So I offered to drive, you know, a couple of people uh, and get us there. And, you know, we get in there and there's like people, there's like live music going on, everything. And I'm just like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of old and it's been a long day. Like, I'm not sure I'm really into this scene. And then like, we all couldn't sit together, which was actually fine because I hate gigantic tables of 12 people. Cause like you can't talk to everyone. Right, so I'd right. rather 
it'd be chopped up, which it was. And then once I found out what was going on with the menu, which was they call it the feast. Like, uh, I like, like that Indian already. Feast. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, which is which is basically like it's like, I don't know, it's like thirty two dollars and you get you get soup, a salad, and then you get to order two entrees, but they're like smaller entrees. But then you can just keep going as much as you want with any of the entrees. So like you order two and then when the server comes back, she's like, what else can we get you? So it's like a, it's like a buffet, but you don't get up. Right. They bring it to you. So I had a lot of spinach paneer that actually, it was like outrageously good. And uh, I had some other dishes that were like lamb curry, chicken masala, like all this other stuff. And I didn't need, I haven't had Indian food in a couple of months. So I love Indian food, so I was pretty happy, man. Nice. Well, thanks for the invite. Uh, I really appreciate oh, no problem, no problem. being included mm-hmm. in this delicious sounding feast. And yet, I still invited you to this podcast. And <laughs> I, I guess I'm going to be rewarded by your hot takes on the new Ravnica <laughs> Allegiance cards we got today. That's what we're here for. I mean, I could talk food all day with you. And, and maybe since Jerry's not here, we could go into other stuff. We could talk wrestling for like a half hour. We could go into oh, baby. We could go into pop punk. Although Jerry would like that discussion too. He doesn't want to be left out of that, I know. That's fair. But but instead, we'll focus on Ravnica Allegiance. You got some incredible new spoilers today. After a few days of silence for the holiday season, and man, were those days tough to endure. Uh, especially on my end, I had to write two articles in that downtime. And I was so frustrated because I want to talk about all these amazing new cards. And there was just nothing for two weeks. And it was so painful. But we're back, baby. Fresh fresh previews. I think we got some meaningful ones today. So we're just going to kind of go by Guild again, talk through these new cards. I want to get your opinion. And we're going to start right with the hotness, the cards that everyone is talking about right now, the Planeswalkers that were spoiled today. And we'll go with the Orzov one first. This is Kaya Orzov Usurper. Uh, This is a one colorless white, black, legendary planeswalker. Plus one, exile up to two target cards from a single graveyard. You gain two life if at least one creature card was exiled this way. Minus one, exile target non-land permanent with converted mana cost one or less. Minus five, Kaya Orzov Usurper deals damage to target player equal to the number of cards that player owns in exile, and you gain that much life, starting loyalty of three. Let me start by saying I love both of these planeswalkers. I love them. Okay. And the reason I love them is because they're not that good. And I <laughs> will talk more about that as we go through our discussion. But let's let's stay focused on Kaya for the time being. What is your quick take on Kaya or Zav Usurper? Does my take have to be quick? No, we can, we can go as long as you want. We can talk hours about Kaya. <laughs> well, okay. So this card, I agree with your initial assessment, which is like this card is not good, is a little strong to me. But here's what I'll say. It's not what we expected, right? right. When, when we figured out that Kaya, Dovin, and Domri were coming, and we haven't seen Domri yet, but, you know, we're like, okay, initial Dovin was not great. Like it's all a little bit of play, but nothing, nothing spectacular. We saw like initial Kaya was in like some commander set or some like ancillary set, right. but never was standard playable. And now it's like, okay, we know they're coming. This is exciting. We're going to have an Orzov planeswalker. Don't know the mana cost. Then you, the first thing you do when you see this card, right? You see the mana cost and you're like, Oh man, mm-hmm. three mana planeswalker. This is going to be pretty good. Probably. Cause three mana planeswalkers traditionally are pushed. Domri, Jace Bellerin. There was like a three mana Johnny, uh, some card called Liliana the Veil. Nissa. So, yeah, like, so three mana planeswalkers have this history of being like for standard defining in most instances. Right. 
this is not. No. At all. Nope. And I look at this thing, and this is so hard to analyze. So, like, the plus one. Exile up to two target creature cards from a single graveyard. You gain two life if at least one creature card was exiled this way. So, standard applications here. Maybe good against Mono Red if you kill their stuff. Maybe good against Golgari because they're able to bring their creatures back with fine finality. Anything else? No, I mean, and I, I think even that's a stretch because as we know against the Phoenix decks, Exiling isn't all that effective. Like if you hit the actual Phoenix, which by the way is seeming, seeing limited play right now, things have moved kind of onto the Drake side of things. Uh, so one Drake is stunted by having cards exiled. The larger Drake, Crackling Drake, doesn't care. It's happy when you're exiling cards. It doesn't affect its power whatsoever. Uh, so Kaya isn't really accomplishing a whole lot there. This is very, very strong against a specific deck that doesn't exist right now. I think like if there was just a deck that leans so hard on its one drops, you could see Kaya playing a big role, but that means Kaya is probably going to slot in as a sideboard card, which is interesting for a planeswalker. Like typically that's not the role planeswalkers fulfill, but I think all the planeswalker rules are just out the window. Now. I, I honestly believe that wizards, reeled things in purposefully. This is what we're seeing is the results of a purposeful action to stop making Planeswalkers the cards that standard just revolves around the, you know, unbeatable threats that when you're on the play are, are are just these fountains of value that your opponent can never catch up to. That's what we dealt with for years and years. And this is an effort to scale back the power level of Planeswalkers. And I really like it because Kaya can find a spot. It's just a very, very specific spot. And that's new. And it's going to take some adjustment, especially on a three mana planeswalker, which, as you said, they're always pushed to the moon. Kaya's just different. She has a very specific role to fulfill. And I'm not sure it's one that standard actually needs fulfilled as it stands right now. Well, just looking at the plus and looking at the standard applications, not a lot going on, right? Right. But let, you know, you take a look at the minus. Exile target, non-land permanent with a converted mana cost one or less. Again, I'm just going to do standard analysis. Initially, I'm trying to think of one mana creatures. Sky Marcher Aspirant comes to mind. There's tokens okay. that you can kill from History of Benalia. Dauntless Bodyguard. Yes. There's some, there's Healer some, the Lava Mancer. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, so here. there's, there's like a bunch of like bad one mana permanents. Okay, cool. And then the minus five, Kaya deals damage to target player equal to the number of cards that player owns in exile and you gain that much life. So ideally you're plussing, you're plussing you know, twice. So there's going to be at least four cards that are exiled, presumably. So let's call this a fireball for four, right? So this is, you know, just for a standard baseline. Maybe this is a cyborg card against someone. Maybe not. Who knows? But where this gets fun to me, Brian, is when you take a look at older formats, because all of a sudden, this is a card you can cast early. Mm-hmm. If you were playing Obzon and you have mana accelerants in your deck, sure. Now, if I'm playing that kind of deck and I want to exile up to two target cards from a single graveyard and gain life, all right, I've got some interest there. A lot of uh, a lot of modern decks use their graveyards, Snapcaster Mage decks, Dredge, Ironworks, so on and so forth. Got some interest in, in peeling some cards out that way. Exile target non-land permanent with converted mana cost one or less. Exile a, a one mana permanent. Well, Ironworks uses a lot of one mana permanents to get set up. Exiling those is a big deal. In modern, obviously, the lower the lower mana cost cards are what you want to play. So Glistener Elf, Noble Hierarch, Champion of the Parish, Ether Vial, all that stuff. You have to minus to do this, but it's it's minus one, so you can do that multiple times, and then maybe use the ultimate, maybe you don't. But when you're playing in modern or legacy for Delver or something like that, I mean, you, there's there's this multitude of permanents that like you might not even think of. Utopia's Brawl, Arbor Elf, 
anything against elves. Death Shadow. Like, there are cards that this is going to exile where all of a sudden you're like, okay, like, again, main deck card, like you said, probably not, but a role player and a sideboard. I think more so in those older formats than standard. Yeah, I agree. I, if, if it's going to see widespread, again, sideboard play. I, I don't think there's any context where this card is able to hop into a main deck and really be that effective. It, it seems like it's mostly going to be a mistake in that role. But as far as sideboard play goes, you're spot on. There are a ton of one mana permanents that eternal formats care about. And that one mana distinction matters a lot more the more you go back in time. And you can find a bunch of stuff for Kaya to pick off. Even if you go all the way back to vintage, there are meaningful targets. Now, is this the best way to deal with those targets? That I'm a little bit more unsure of. I I see potential. I think exiling matters. I think the versatility of picking off things like you're talking about right now, uh, chromatic spheres and the like, and mox opals, and just getting some of the the garbage off the battlefield can be very meaningful. I'm just uh, concerned it's a little bit slow, a little bit clunky, and in fail state type operations, it's going to do almost nothing. And I think that's going to be the death knell that really makes Kaya see almost no play. Three mana spells in modern have to be so, so impactful, even if they're coming out of the sideboard. And I'm just not sure Kaya is going to get there. I will keep it in my memory banks. I will be aware of it if the situation presents itself where the format is presenting all of these one mana things that I just have to deal with. And I'm in these kind of already weak color combinations. Abzan is not exactly tearing things up right now. Haven't seen black white tokens in a very long time. So on the whole, the Orzov guild is a little underrepresented in modern. Even if you go to like control decks, we're doing Jeskai and blue white. We're not stretching into Esper right now. So that is also a knock against Kaya. But if those decks are able to find another key piece in these sets or in the future, maybe Kaya steps up and does something for them. The last thing I'll say about Kaya before we move on is the other three mana Planeswalker that I didn't get to mention when I was rolling off the old ones initially was Ashiok. Uh And Ashiok is still a card that to this day, when I look at it, because I remember when it was printed and I just went, the heck does this card even do? Just doesn't really do anything it's strange like am i supposed to kill this am i supposed to attack this like it could potentially do something kaya reminds me of that so much of your initial examination is like eh, i don't really see a lot that's going on here but like you know the minus ability ashiak could bring something back this can exile a non-land permanent and then all of a sudden ashiak you know it, it saw a fair amount of play it had an ultimate that it could threaten and you know how much do we think this ultimate's going to deal on kaya it's so hard to say because you might just be in a stable battlefield and you're just like, exile two more cards, exile two more cards, exile two more cards. Now it's eight. Now it's 10. Oh my gosh. Like you just have no clue. So yeah. It's hard to analyze, but I'm excited because this is the, this, this card is one that people have immediately dismissed because it's so strange and it's not what you expect from a three mana planeswalker, mm. but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. That's all I'll say. I always say that planeswalker is the hardest card type to properly evaluate in magic when you know we've done so many of these shows now so i've done a lot of these early evaluations of planeswalkers sometimes we nail it you know we go back to dominaria we had teferi and karn as our one and two cards in the set and you know those were patently powerful and i i think that was a good read where you know i don't know if other people were as high on teferi initially 
But I can also go back to other planeswalkers that we've had way too high on our lists, or maybe just excluded from our list. They're a challenging card type to evaluate. You really need to have them on the battlefield, especially with this new breed of planeswalkers where it's not just patently obvious on their face what they do. And I love that you mentioned Ashiok because number one, it's my favorite planeswalker of all time. Number two, it feels more like this new breed of planeswalkers. It, it like didn't fit in its time frame. It belongs in the modern era of planeswalkers. It was harder to evaluate. It did weirdo stuff. It wasn't just plus draw a card, minus kill something, ultimate win the game, <laughs> which is kind of what all of these planeswalkers were doing for the longest period of time. It's nice to have a new template for planeswalkers. And speaking of new templates for planeswalkers, we have now the next superstar that came out of today's spoilers. It is Dovin, Grand Arbiter, the Azorius Planeswalker. Another three mana Planeswalker, one colorless, white, blue, legendary Planeswalker Dovin. Plus one until end of turn. Whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, put a loyalty counter on Dovin, Grand Arbiter. Minus one, create a 1-1 colorless Thopter artifact creature token with flying. You gain one life. Minus seven, look at the top 10 cards of your library, put three of them into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order, and Dovin is going to start at three loyalty. So Cedric, what is your take on Dovin Grand Arbiter? So you said something that I really liked, that you mentioned how Planeswalkers were so plus do this, minus do this super minus win the game, right? Like plus essentially draw a card minus protect myself. And then mega minus you definitely lose in some obscure way. And I think that Teferi and Karn are the last of a dying breed, especially, especially Teferi. I don't think that's ever going to happen again. Agreed. for Dovin and for Kaya, these are kind of the new guard of planeswalkers. And what this is, especially Dovin is I think this is, hey, we want to make a good three-mana Planeswalker, but we don't want to make a great three-mana Planeswalker. Because to me, this card is probably better than, again, people realize, just like Kaya. What, what's happening right now, and this was what was going on on Twitter all day today, is, you know, people, the, the camps were split, right? Some people are super hy- hyperbolic both ways, and they're just like, this card is insane. This card is horrible. The plus one doesn't do anything. It's somewhere in the middle. The plus one... In a creature deck, maybe you are, maybe you are, instead of being Boros like Ellen Bogan was, maybe you're Azorius now and you're splashing this card. Who knows? Maybe you're the mono blue aggro deck and you're splashing white now. Again, who knows? But, you know, the, the fact that you get to plus this and get to the minus seven pretty quickly, the minus seven is absurd. It is absurd putting three cards in your hand and putting the rest on the bottom of your deck. Like, you know, we've obviously played with Dig Through Time before, and, like, we know that effect of looking at the top X cards and taking more than one with you is very good. Now, how good is that when you're taking multiple creatures? Well, who knows? Like, you know, we've seen cards like Ranger of EOC play, and it's not a direct comparison, but I think it's totally fine. And even when you kind of look at the middle ability, which is pretty simple, create a 1-1 Thopter artifact creature token when flying, you gain a life. Yeah, that's not, like, big and splashy, and you wouldn't pay three mana for that card if they just made one blue white mega one one gain a life you would never play that card but if i get to do that repeatedly i've got some interest i've got an ultimate to work towards all these other things all of it is subtle and none of it is in your face which is why i think everyone's having a difficult time analyzing these cards and you know three mana planeswalkers historically have just been like yo i'm good it's right. just like liliana you just read liliana and just go like okay yep 
this is dumb. This is going to see play, obviously, in like every black deck for the foreseeable future, which has been like almost a decade now. But you look at Dovin, you look at Dovin, and this is the kind of card, and this is why I love magic, where you actually just have to play the games to see if this is good. You can't analyze this card appropriately without playing a game. This could be way better or way worse than anybody thinks, and that's what's really exciting to me. Yeah, and look, I'll admit that I kind of should take some of the heat on this too, because even when I was doing my intro call to these planeswalkers, my analysis was they're not very good. And that's obviously a gross oversimplification. What I mean by that is exactly what you said. They aren't the type of cards that just dominate on their own. They are cards that you have to carefully consider their placement, build around them, make concessions to maximize them. Because look, if you're presenting me a deck that is going one drop, whatever, Sky Marcher Aspirant, two drop, Tithe Taker, three drop, Dovin, plus attack with two guys, now I have a six loyalty planeswalker sitting in play, threatening to ultimate very, very soon. That sounds pretty good to me. And I think those kind of curve out draws are exactly where Dovin is supposed to slot. Now, in the control context, I see Dovin as a loser. I, I don't think this is just like the blue white control decks want to jam for Dovin's in their deck. It doesn't accomplish a whole, mu- a whole lot in that scenario. You really need to find ways to maximize the plus one and quick, quickly move to the minus seven because it's not a game winning ability. It's something that you want to use for value as a threat in your threat dense deck. And the minus one plays into that line of thinking. You know, the control player across the table has dealt with your initial rush. And now you have this fountain of value that you can tap into in the late game to make a kind of army in the can with your one one thopters. That's where I really see Dovin succeeding. I bristle when I see people just go haywire over cards like this because that's not what planeswalkers are going to do anymore they're not just going to be automatic four ofs in any deck that can present these colors you have to work to make dovin great the work can be done i'm excited to see what the azorius aggressive decks are going to look like i think you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't consider that line of thinking like you said the red splash might be obsoleted by a dovin splash i can see a lot of metagames where that would be quite fine and then you have access to your negates in post-board games and you're able to counteract wraths and and key planeswalkers so all that sounds very appealing to me and i think it also flows in pretty well with a a couple of other creatures we're going to talk about as we move through this analysis of these new spoilers I don't think Dovin has any real reach into eternal formats. It doesn't quite seem to line up with goals in modern or goals in legacy. Do you have any high hopes for Dovin as we move back into the eternal formats? I don't. Uh, I really don't. This feels much more like a standard card to me than anything. Right. Just I can't. I, I'm trying to wrap my head around like what kind of modern deck would play this type of card. It's so slow. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't handle like a one mana permanent like Kaya does or affect the graveyard or anything like that. And and legitimately, like you working towards the ultimate in in modern or legacy is just it is painfully slow that I just don't think I can see it being anything. I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again, but I just don't see it there. But, you know, one, one other quick point I do want to make really quickly is. You know, for the analysis that at least I'm going to do for these cards uh, in most instances, and, and I don't want to speak for you, but, you know, I imagine people when, when new sets come out, they're looking for the hot take, mm-hmm. right? They're looking for this card's busted, you know, go pre-order, your, go pre-order yours today, or this is the worst card of all time, blah, blah, blah. And it reminds me a lot of sports, how it's very hot takey, and it's just like, you know, right? looks like the Patriots are all washed up. They are all done ski, and it's like, no, they're just, there's 16 games to play, and it's the third one. 
can't we just give it some time? Like when I look at Dovin and Kaya, everyone wants to just hear like the, this card's busted or like this is the worst card of all time. And it's like, I don't know. We haven't even played with them yet. We don't know all the other cards. You know, I, I want to give what I feel like is a helpful breakdown as opposed to like the hot take of like, you know, Dovin's just, uh, it's just going to be the best card. So what are we even talking about? Like, I'm just, you're not going to get that from me personally, especially with cards that are this hard to analyze. Like the, when we did the, when we analyzed the, the cards previously in the last time I was on, and the only one that was like a real slam dunk was the reveler, Rixmati reveler, right. just because we've seen cards like that before. And like that one is so obviously good, but not overpowered. But for a card like this, it's just like, we got to play the games. We yeah. got to play the games to know. I, I think you're spot on. And I think our audience is very receptive to that line of analysis. Like people who have listened to the game podcast for now years know that we take a measured approach. We try and analyze where can this card succeed as opposed to just saying this card's an eight out of 10 or this card's a seven out of 10 because they're, they're meaningless. They're meaningless distinctions. Those, those kind of number grades don't really do anything for you. Oh my God. I, I hate them so much. Articles that are just like, was this card like a, the star ratings, like one out of five or a through F. Right. But like, you, what does that even mean? But you know, the problem here is that people love that kind of stuff. They love I know they the do. star ratings and they love like the surprised YouTube face. Like, Oh my God, Dovin's busted. And it's me with like my hands on my face and my mouth wide open and a picture yeah. of Dovin next to me. Like that would get a million clicks on YouTube because people like those kind of hyperbolic takes and we're all guilty of it from time to time. We're kind of in the business of having exciting shows and generating exciting content. And sometimes you take those aggressive lines and hot takes. The truth is always going to lie somewhere in the middle, though. I think Dovin is a card worth exploring. That's basically the way I approach most cards. When we come into a new set, I say, what can this card do? What is it capable of? Dovin has some very pronounced capabilities, but not as a four of and everything, build your deck around Dovin, and I think you'll get some payoff. The question is, are the support cards there? Is mono white splash, you know, a tiny bit of blue still something we're looking to do? And that all depends tremendously on context, which we will fill in as time goes on. Right through with you, man. What's our next one? The next card, another Azorius card, Deputy of Detention. This Busted. Is- <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if it was a human, you could make that call. But this is, <laughs> yeah. this is one colorless, one white, one blue creature, Vidalkin Wizard. Somehow not a human. I think as soon as I started reading the text on this card, I scrolled back up and expected it to be a human. It's not. When Deputy of Detention enters the battlefield, exile target non-land permanent and opponent controls and all other non-land permanents that player controls with the same name as that permanent until Deputy of Detention leaves the battlefield. This card is, in fact, great. It is diverse. Like, we've seen Fiend Hunter find success in past standard formats. Mm-hmm. This card is so much better than Fiend Hunter, it's kind of mind-blowing. The fact that it can answer all forms of permanent, really, really innovative use of this kind of creature-based exile. It's almost always just locking up other creatures. This is the first time I think we've really seen anything like this. This is a tool for Bant Company decks. If you want to stretch back to modern, diverse answers, things like KCI can now be taken out by your you know, 32 creature deck, which is pretty impressive. As far as tokens that exist in standard, they're there. You'll get benefit from being able to go wide like this. Think of like an explosive arc like Phoenix start and you play Deputy of Detention and grab two or three arc like Phoenixes off the battlefield. That's very, very exciting to me. 
The body, obviously not the most effective body. One, three isn't going to win any awards. It's not going to present a super fast clock, but this card just does so much. Again, we're talking about a world where blue white may want to be a creature based deck to take advantage of something like Dovin Bond. In that world, Deputy of Detention definitely has my attention right now. Detention, attention. I mm-hmm. see what you did there. Yeah. Well done. A little, little freestyling for you. You're going to be really good at coverage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so a, a couple of notes here very quickly. First of all, you pointed out that it's a Dalkin Wizard, not a human. At some point last year, because we're in 2019, at some point last year, Saffron Olive said that uh, he felt that humans was going to be like the best tribe in modern because they're just going to keep printing humans. They could just not. So, like, that's the thing uh, that I always want to comment on that is just, like, they're cognizant of the fact that, like, humans is a deck. And, yes, they could just print busted humans as often as they wanted to. Or they could just say, you know what, this is a Vidalcan wizard and not a human. Because, like, if I told you this was a human, it would make sense. Right. But if I tell you it's a Vidalcan wizard, it also makes sense also because makes Azorius sense, yeah. and, and Dovenbond and everything. So, you know, there's no guarantee that they're just going to print busted humans and humans will be the best deck in modern. I'd love if it were. But, you know, who knows? As far as this card is concerned, uh, I think everything you said is dead on. This is Fiend Hunter, but better in some instances. Obviously, it's a little bit more difficult to cast. Not always. Not always. Though. That, that can be easier. I mean, we saw it with yeah. Sinister Sabotage versus Ionize, right? Sometimes this is just an easier mana cost to generate. So I don't even think you can go that far. That's always harder to cast. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So, you know, there's there's that aspect of things where it's just like, is this can be easier to cast. And the effect is it's huge upside, but there's also some huge downside, too. You know, if you kill this thing and you mentioned the Arclight Phoenix starts, well, it is only three toughness. So, mm-hmm. you know, you kill this, those Arclight Phoenixes are back on the battlefield. They're doing their thing. But we've seen these kind of effects before, like Faceless Butcher and Fiend Hunter and Banisher Priest and Oblivion Ring and all that other stuff. This might be the best one that we've seen of this type before, ignoring Detention Sphere. And obviously this is a play off of that, but there's a lot to like about this card. I like the fact that, you know, it would have been very easy for them to just say, hey, we're going to reprint Detention Sphere. Because mm-hmm. it was really good, but it, it wasn't overpowered. It was merely very good, but they've made a new version of it. That's a creature, which creatures are more vulnerable than enchantments generally in constructed magic. So right. I like that. Do I think it'll see play across multiple formats? Potentially. Potentially you want this effect on a body instead of on an enchantment in modern. That's in play. I, I think you're right. Yeah. As long as collected company exists, right? You have to consider yes. cards that can come in at instant speed and just wreck an opposing board for sure. Yeah, like does Azorius control and Jeskai control want detention sphere instead of this? Yeah, of course. They're generally a creatureless deck, but will humans or bant spirits and source some some sort of bant company deck want this instead of detention sphere? Almost assuredly. So th- this one, unlike Dovin and unlike Kaya, is a lot more straightforward. It's good. It will see play. It will not be overpowered. There are ways to interact with it. Lava coil, terror, whatever other black removal, chupacabra, whatever. There's ways to deal with it. It's good. It'll see play if Azorius is a thing. Well done. Happy, happy. Yeah, basically right there with you. Uh, I will note, you mentioned could have gone with Detention Sphere. I don't think you actually can because Detention Sphere uses that old weirdo templating where it can create like the loops and you don't get the card back if you exile it when it comes into play. And they've moved away from that templating as far as exile effects goes. This has the cleaner templating where you just get to exile the thing. So I, I don't think we'd ever see Detention Sphere again, just given how they've moved away from that particular language on that type of effect. But I, I do think that there are other tribal synergies here to keep in mind. Wizards are cards. 
There's some wizard-based spells that are floating around out there, be it the lightning bolt or a counter spell that gives wizards big dividends. There's wizard lords all over the place. So maybe deputy of detention goes even a little bit deeper than that and is paying off some tribal synergies that have been lurking a little bit in the background, haven't quite cracked standard yet, even if they've made occasional appearances in modern. And maybe this does something new to the modern wizards decks. Who, who knows exactly what it's capable of, but... Like you said, a card worth watching, a card I'm excited about. We'll see where it slots eventually. Looking forward to it. Next, I want to go to the Rakdos Guild. And I I think you're going to be surprised when I say this. Here's my hot take. This is the most exciting card previewed maybe thus far. Uh, This is a wild one for reasons I'll get into. I'm talking, of course, about Judith, the Scourge Diva. What a wild name for a magic card. Uh, in my head, this is just Lady Gaga. I don't know why. That's just how I'm always <laughs> going to think about this card. Uh, Judith the Scourge Diva is one colorless, black-red, legendary creature, human shaman. Another human. <laughs> Judith reads, other creatures you control get plus one, plus zero. Whenever a non-token creature you control dies, Judith the Scourge Diva deals one damage to any target. And Judith is a 2-2. Two, two. Cedric, what's your thoughts on Judith? Are you as excited as I am? So there's some excitement here for me because generally when a creature dies, it deals one damage to the player. That is not the case here. You can divvy it up, up and down, all around, Planeswalker, another creature. If some reason you want to ting your own creature, like a Boros Reckoner, you can do that. So um, I like that aspect of things. Creature type, obviously human, like that, given that I like to play humans in modern. Other creatures you control get plus one, plus oh means they're more aggressively slanted, but they're not getting more toughness. So that means that they still kind of want to die. Very on theme for Rakdos and the second ability. There's probably some sort of weird aristocrats sacrifice deck that Sam Black is already working on uh, that's going to abuse this thing. Also, it's pretty good in multiples, right? When you play one and then play another one, whenever a non-token creature you control dies, including Judith itself, Tingling, two damage, two damage. you can spread that two damage however you'd like. It's relatively easy to cast it. Black, red, one. Uh, strikes me as a pretty good card. Strikes me as a pretty good card with a lot of upside. That's how I'm looking at it right now. Let me let me strike you with something else here. So all, all of this sounds great. I mean, this is a card I'm already excited about. I will also point out to you that there are infinite loops in standard that just needed a blood artist to be kill conditions. The main one that I've heard talked about, and I know good friend of the game podcast, Yeoman5 is already looking into this loop. And it was the first place my mind went when I saw Judith, because as, as you guessed, Sam Black was already working on something, basically exploiting these cards. But you can do stuff with Skirk Prospector, Goblin Warchief, what's the name of the two drops? Steamkin, uh, Frenzy Steamkin, and the... Final piece of the puzzle is Squee. That's a loop. If you have excess mana going into that, you can actually loop that infinite times. And on each sacrifice of Squee, you will now deal one damage to your opponent. Now, that's a four-card combo I just put forth for you. Usually not that a is big a, deal. That is a lot of cards, yes. Let me slow you down a little bit again. So all of those cards generally play very well together. Those are goblins and red cards, and you're generally fine doing all that stuff, uh, presenting a battlefield against your opponent. Are you familiar with the card Gruesome Menagerie? I am very familiar with the card Gruesome Menagerie. Which returns a one drop, a two drop, and a three drop 
to the battlefield for Black Black Three Colorless. Do you notice anything about that list of cards I, I just dropped on you right there? They appear to work very well with Gruesome Menagerie. Yeah, yes, they do. This this is my starting point for week one of Ravnica Allegiance Standard. I want to see what this package can do. It might be a lot. It might be nothing. But as soon as you start having capabilities to produce infinite loops in a deck, which is just playing a totally fine proactive plan, you know, we can just go up to Siege Gang Commander and then sacrifice all of our Siege Gang Commanders to our Skirk Prospector, play another four drop and just fireball our opponents out with the right kind of setups. Blood Artist was a card that was sorely missing from the standard format for a lot of this type of deck. Judith is one of the best blood artists we've ever seen. There's a lot of payoffs floating around the peripheries of standard. And I think Judith is going to bring them to the forefront, which is why I'm most excited about this card so far. I don't know if it's the best card we've seen spoiled, but it's the one maybe with the most capability to just spawn an entirely new archetype and it being a tier one archetype on top of that. Well, there's a lot of upside here. And the way you talk about the card and all the combos that you just mentioned feels very goblin bidding esque, Mm -hmm. which is uh, for I I don't know the age of your listeners, but I'm an old school guy who's been playing magic for 15 years. So Patriarch's bidding with Skirk Prospector and Siege Gang Commander and Warchief and Goblin Sharpshooter was a thing. And, you know, this is this is reminiscent of that with Prospector, Runaway Steamkin, Squee, as you mentioned, Judith. Gruesome Menagerie is just going to be good in a deck like that just because it's going to let you bring back some creatures to keep going against control decks or aggro decks, either one, or it can be a kill out of nowhere, which is very cool. I dig that as well. This card to me, it's clearly pushed simply because, again, on cards like this, you typically see it say whenever a non-token creature you control dies, or another non-token creature control dies, that's not Judith, or it deals one damage to a to a player mm-hmm. or an opponent and not any target. So there's a bunch of things that are missing from this card that you would expect to see that just aren't here, which means like there's a lot of... Uh, man, this is pushed. There's a lot to this card. And you can't also ignore just the plus one plus zero, which is the part we're not even highlighting that much. Like, that matters too. Let's sure trade it up when you're playing defensively. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. There's a this is a very, very, very pushed card, um, which it might not look that way on the surface. And it's funny, right? They released two planeswalkers that cost three mana and then a creature that cost three mana. And a lot of the attention, I think, is on the planeswalkers for how good and or bad they may be. There's nothing bad about this card. The question is, how good is it going to be? And I think it has the potential to be very good. I'm right there with you. I can't wait to hear what Jerry thinks about this card because this is also right in his wheelhouse as well. He loves the style of deck building. I bet he's going to be really excited about Judith. We'll definitely check in with him on this next week. So that is all we have for Rakdos. And again, for the second time when you come on our cast, no Gruul cards, nothing, nothing new. I don't know. There's just something against Gruul when you, when you do a guest appearance on the game podcast. So we will move right on to Simic and we have our first Simic Mythic. This is Hydroid Crassus. Hydroid Crassus costs X, green, blue. It is a jellyfish Hydra beast, because of course it is. Uh, It reads, when you cast the spell, note that, when you cast the spell, you gain half X life and draw half X cards. Round down each time. Flying Trample, Hydroid Crassus enters the battlefield with X plus one plus one counters on it. And it is a zero zero. 
So here's how I want to talk about this card, Cedric. I'm, I'm going to propose some theoretical cards to you. You tell me if you like them. Do you like a card which is green, blue, two colorless mana, two, two flying trample, draw a card, gain one life? Are you excited about that card? Am I excited? I don't hate it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm not excited, but at the same time, it's just like, yeah, absolutely. Draw a card, gain life, have a body. Body might be outclassed, but at the same time, like if I'm playing against Boros or something, I might get to trade with a creature, gain a life, and I drew a card, so now I'm ahead on cards. Sure, I don't I don't dislike that. Seems okay. Not, nothing yeah. to write home about, but seems okay. How about a creature which is green, blue, four colorless? It is a four for a flying trampler. When it comes in, not even when it comes into play, when you cast it, you draw two cards, gain two life. Does that sound like something you might be interested in? I like this more. Yeah. I like this more. This is this is Mold Drifter Cloud Blazer-esque. Mm-hmm. A little bit more expensive, but a bigger body than the Cloud Blazer, obviously. Um, so the, and, and also Cloud Blazer didn't trample where this does. Now, trample on a flyer doesn't matter that often, but it can come up occasionally, especially, you know, if Dovin is making thopters, you need to get through some damage, so on and so forth. That kind of thing can definitely matter. But yeah, I mean, I'm into that card, especially if there's some acceleration going on in the format. Right. And and don't sleep on the fact that you're getting those cards and that life, no matter what. They can have a essence scatter. It really doesn't matter. Those cards are coming into your hand. Now, how about this last one? It is green, blue, six colorless, six, six flying trampler, gain three life, draw three cards. What do you think about that? Really good in my cube deck. Yeah. So... What if you get all those cards? Now are you starting to get priced into something a little bit more excited? Yeah, I mean, I like this card. I, I Flexible X cards like this. I mean, I'm not going to steal Todd Anderson's thunder here. He wrote an article today that I edited. It's going to go live tomorrow on Thursday um, on the premium side of SCG that compares this card to Genesis Hydra, which I think is just a pretty apt comparison, honestly. I forgot Genesis Hydra existed until Todd wrote about it. And this all sounds in line with that card. Now, that card, I believe, if memory serves, was pushed via Nykthos. Mm-hmm. That is correct. But, but you know, just some ramp with a card like this is going to be good. So if there's some ramp that comes along with this, and obviously it's green, so I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case, it's going to be a good card. It, it's flexible, which, you know, expel creature like this, it's nice. The rounding down aspect of things, templating-wise, is a little bit strange, but, you know... you. It's, I mean, people will get used to it, so it'll be fine. The creature types on it are very on-flavor and on-brand for Simic. There's a lot to like about this card. It is a Mythic Rare, which means that it was probably tested extensively, and they felt that like this was too good to be a Rare, probably for Draft, but also just for Constructed. So this is obviously going to be a good card. I don't know how good it's going to be, because we still need to see more Simic, but I think this is definitely a good card. Pretty excited about this card on my end. I, I can think back to so many huge mana decks that were desperate for this kind of payoff, this bridge to their late game that is still functional in the early game, having a four drop uh, and so many ramp decks would make such a difference. And now you have one, but you also have your five drop and your six drop and your eight drop and your 12 drop. All of these things are now present and you're going to get that refill no matter what. And that's one of the fears of a ramp deck is you get to your payoff and you just get brick walled by one two mana counter spell and there's nothing you can do about it. Now against slower control decks, you're going to be able to still establish your ramp game. Obviously, they're not going to seize the game in the early turns. They need time to get to their setup point. And you're going to get to cast with an X of six and get three new cards, maybe another Hydroid Grasses that you can now try and force through again. So 
I, I like how this card snowballs. I like its versatility. I think it's an important tool for a ramp deck to have. A lot of the ramp decks I've messed around with uh, since we lost Ulamog, they just don't have the kind of payoff you're looking for. And they struggle so much with bridging between the early game and the late game. And I think Hydroid Crassus does that in one card. And I feel like opinions are a little low on this card right now. People are like, eh, seems nice. I think this is actually an actively exciting card for ramp strategies and exactly the type of flexibility they need to be able to find success. I mean, this might be another card, honestly, that might go into whatever resurgence there is of a Bant Nexus or Turbofog-esque deck. Maybe bridge the gap, help find Teferi, help buy you some time, so on and so forth. Who knows? Obviously, that kind of deck wants to play fog effects to stall to get the Nexus and to get to Teferi. And maybe this is part of the, hey, I got creatures in my sideboard. What's up? Right. Ramp into this thing. Right. If nothing else, it's a fine shift in sideboard games, right? Yeah. Yeah. And But it's got, it obviously has so much more potential than that. So we wait and see uh, what's going to show up with the rest of the set. But uh, tentatively, I'm a fan. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. Let's see what comes next. So our next Simic card, we have a rare Biomancer's Pet. Green, blue. This is Creature Mutant. Uh, it reads, activated abilities of creatures you control cost up to two less to activate. This effect can't reduce the amount of mana and ability cost to activate to less than one mana. Basically training grounds on a stick. Biomancer's Pet can tap. Until end of turn, the next time target creature adapts, it adapts as if it had no plus one, plus one counters on it. Basically getting a second chance at adapting, making your adapt creatures particularly large. Any thoughts on Biomancer's pet? This is a weird one, right? This is a weird one. This is obviously trying to push adapt further, uh, but this is a weird one. So blue, green, two, two, activate abilities cost two less, but then you bring it all the way. It can't cost less than one mana, so it can't be free. So the lowest you can get it down to is either a single colorless mana or a single colored mana. Correct. So I'm trying to think of like what would utilize that in standard. Well, I've got some good news here. I happen to have a list of interesting cards. Oh, wow. Look right at you in front of me. Ready. I know. It's, okay. almost like, it's almost like I prepare for this show. Jeez, I'm so proud of you. Uh, so Elvish Clan Caller is the first one to come to mind. Uh, you now get to search for another Clan Caller for just GG2. That's a pretty good deal. Okay. Are you familiar with Nicole Bolas? Have you seen that card around in your time? Ah, project? the Ravager. You can make it cheaper. Okay. Mm, five mana now to create Nicole Bolas the Arisen. Obviously, we're asking for a lot of colors of mana there. But mm, if you've ever put Nicole Bolas the Arisen onto the battlefield, you know exactly what that card is capable of. And doing it for just five mana sounds pretty sweet to me. How about Lazav, the Multifarious? Usually that Ability is a little expensive, a little costly to use. Well, now you're getting just value on your mana and copying much larger creatures for two mana less. I thought that was pretty exciting. Mystic Archaeologist, blue, blue, one, draw two cards as many times as you would like. Mm, eh, I don't know. That's interesting. Uh, a weirdo one I saw, Shapers of Nature. If you played a lot of Ixalan Limited, you remember this card. Now for yeah. green one, you can put a counter on any creature you want. And for just one blue mana, you can remove a counter from any creature you want and draw a card uh, in a deck, which is going to be throwing creatures all over, uh, counters all over the place. That might be quite promising. In general, setting up combos like this doesn't feel exactly like how magic works these days, 
we're kind of based more on raw power level than mushing together these type of synergies. It's it's rare the payoffs are large enough in comparison with other things you can potentially do in the format. But I don't know. Biomaster's pet is at least interesting. I'll certainly build some goofy decks around it. And, you know, all these creatures I just listed, that's not even mentioning the adapt mechanic, which we're still waiting to see all the pieces of. So there might be some adapt all-stars that you really want to use the second half of Biomancer's pet on. It's really unclear right now. And obviously, whether you're using the second ability or not, you're still getting a discount on those adapt abilities, which is really nice. It's an interesting card. It strikes me as a role player, but I think... So... (laughs) Younger me, way back in the day, would look at this card and say, like, okay, where'd they make a mistake? Mm-hmm. Where'd they screw up? But I think that's so unlikely now that it's just like, okay, this is just going to be kind of a good card that makes Adapt cheaper. And they've took a good look at, like, the activated abilities in the standard and some of them being cheaper is is appropriate. I mean, Nickel Bolus is a great example, right? If Nickel Bolus was four mana, enters the battlefield, discard a card, fly, five mana, transform, okay, you win. Like, what mm-hmm. are we even talking about? Um, but like, if you want to have access to that, like you got to pay to play, which means you got to put green man in your deck and your tutu's got to survive. And you know, that's, there's a world where that does exist. How often is that? Probably not that often, but it does exist. And when that does happen, you will probably win the game. So I, I, I think that, you know, stuff like that, where they probably analyze stuff like that during the play design process and say like, we're okay with this being a thing because you got to be able to play Biomancer's pet. You got to be able to play nickel Bolas. They have to both live. And then, like, if you put together that winning combination, it almost feels like it almost feels like the meld mechanic. You know, you've put the two creatures together and done your thing. And right. if you've done that, good for you. Yeah, I mean, my analysis is basically the same. I I went through the list of all the activated abilities. There's many more beyond these few I've listed. None of them leaped off the page to me as broken. Whereas in the past, I think I would have had an expectation, like, okay, this card's going to break. Uh, I have a lot more trust in the play design department. Obviously, a lot of game alumni is hanging out over there doing their thing. Shout outs to Majors and Andrew Brown. I know they looked at this card very carefully because it is the type of card that could just do busted things. You're going to have to work for it with Biomancer's Pet, though. It's interesting. I'll certainly build around it. It would surprise me if it raises to the top tiers of standard. I will say that. I don't think it's impossible. I would be surprised, though. I'd be surprised, too. Okay, let's let's leave the guilds now. We have a couple of weirdo outliers that aren't aligned with any particular guild. The first of which is mass manipulation. Uh, mass manipulation is XXUUUU. That's four blue mana XX. Sorcery, gain control of X target creatures and or planeswalkers. This feels like the big splashy EDH card uh, that we've seen thus far. Unlikely to make an impact in Constructed. Although six mana to take control of a Planeswalker without an enchantment, there's been worlds where that's totally reasonable. I don't think the current Planeswalkers really incentivize you to do those things. You know, the only one that really comes to mind that you'd be happy investing that much mana in is Teferi. And Teferi will usually be well protected. Obviously, if Faraska is a player, you're very happy to spend six mana there and get a huge swing in your favor. So I could see some fringe play for mass manipulation. I don't think it's an all-star. I think it's designed for more casual formats, but having undisenchantable steel effects is, is always an interesting tool for these decks to have access to. This one's expensive, obviously, and it's hard to cast in a world of Ravnica where you're going to have multicolored decks. And we're talking you, 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 for sure. XX. So, so at the very least, we're talking six mana, right? That's yep. 
that's where this this that's where this party gets started, and it's a hard six mana to even do. So when I think about that, I think about exactly what you said. It's more so planeswalkers and creatures. So, but you know, obviously creatures can work themselves into the equation, and if you need to take a creature, sure. But I think you're playing this for the ability to take a planeswalker, uh, to fairy most notably. This is the kind of card to me that it will show up at some point during its standard lifespan, and it will take a lot of people by surprise. Mm. I remember Confiscation Coup right, right, doing exactly. that. Uh, if you played way back when, when Solar Flare was like kind of the best thing going on, there were some number of take possessions in the sideboard. Yep. You know, you, you will see what looks like on the surface. It's like, man, this is really, really expensive. Can't ever imagine main decking this, playing multiple copies. Just seems like a commander card, whatever. And then, you know, Brad Nelson will throw two in his sideboard for whatever reason, and it will take a Teferi when it's about to ultimate, and then you get to ultimate it, or something else, because, like, the games just play out in such a fashion that, like, that's a realistic thing that can happen. So I look at this card as one that is not something you're going to play four copies of. You might play one in your main deck on a specific metagame or weekend, and you might play one or two in your sideboard. But past that, I mean, not really a lot going on here, because I just don't foresee... I don't foresee the ability to make a ton of mana to be able to do this. Again, you know, Turbo Fog does come to mind again. My new favorite deck. Thanks, Brian. Mm-hmm. It, it does It does come to mind as, hey, if I've got a bunch of mana, I'm drawing a bunch of cards. This could weirdly be a win condition. So that's all I really see for it, though. It's very much a, a fringe player in specific metagames. Yeah, a, a strange tool. Don't lose track of it though, because there may be a spot where this is exactly what you're looking for. Keep it on your, keep it in your playables binder if that's the way you organize your cards, and that way you'll always have it on hand for just the right weekend. Let's move to the last of our cards, and this is a weird one, <laughs> a really weird one. I honestly don't know how to evaluate it as it stands. I am talking, of course, about Sphinx of Foresight, two colorless blue blue creature Sphinx. Uh, This is a 4-4 flyer. You may reveal this card from your opening hand. If you do, scry three at the beginning of your first upkeep. In addition, at the beginning of your upkeep, scry one. And that's all future upkeeps as well. I just don't know what to make of this card. I mean, the scry three ability can be so powerful in certain contexts, but they're usually context where you're not trying to play cards like Sphinx of Foresight in your deck. Give me some clarity here, Cedric. I don't know what I'm looking at right now. I'm kind of baffled and I'm trying to find a home for Sphinx of Foresight because it's so cool. But who's really interested in this? So I'm a little bit biased because uh, 40 card Friedman, Ben Friedman, he wrote an article about this today that's also going live on Star City Thursday. I think he might be right. This card might be insane. Wow. Tell me why. I mean, we don't want to steal his thunder. We'll be coming out after yeah. his article. It'll be coming out, out after. Yeah, it'll be yeah. coming out after afterward because this comes out on Friday. Right. Yeah. Be, I mean, ben, Ben's thesis is basically the ability to get to scry three when this card is your opening hand is, is complete lunacy. So, you know, with Ley Lines and Chancellor of the Annex and the Chancellor series and like Gemstone Caverns, those cards are bad after you draw them. This is not. So just on the just on the premise of how good is this card when it's not my opening hand and when I draw it, it's completely reasonable. Four mana, four, four flyer can be a roadblock. Scry one at the beginning of your upkeep is something you would happily do um, if it was just gifted to you for free, whatever. But when this card is just in your opening hand, first, if you mulligan and it's in your opening hand, 
it makes your mulligan a million times better because you get to scry three instead of scry one, but you're going to scry one at the beginning of the game anyway. But let's say like you, you're on the draw and you see, I don't know, fatal push, right? And it's just like, I, mm, I don't even know what I'm playing against. There's some matchups where I 100% need this card. There are some matchups where this needs to go to the bottom of my deck immediately. I don't ever want to draw one. You have Sphinx in your hand and your opponent takes their first turn. And now you get to do this on your forced upkeep after your opponent has taken an action. Scry three and go like, okay, I know exactly what I need to find based off of their turn one play in a lot of instances if you're well-versed in the format. If your opponent plays a Tron land, you know exactly what they're doing, so on and so forth. Same thing can be said in Legacy. If you want to involve this Legacy, it's a blue card for Force of Will. It's a card you can put back with Brainstorm after the Scry 3. It's bigger than Insectile Aberration. It's outside of the range of like some of the counter spells, like Spell Snare and stuff like that. But it it's, four, it's mana. four mana, though. I mean, that's that's a billion in Legacy. You can have a Jace the Mind Sculptor at that cost, and instead you're trading you that for an Air Elemental. You can have a Jace the Mind Sculptor. Uh, I would never argue otherwise. But but your co-host of this podcast, Mr. Thompson, has had a lot of success with Shard the Sultai casting four mana, three mana and four mana spells because he was playing Ancestral Vision. Right. So it can be done. You know, we've seen metagames where Garrick is like one of the best things going on and Jace. And, you know, this is out of abrupt decay range. So, again, there is there is some merit to a card like this. And that doesn't even get into any of the standard applications. A 4-4-4 four, 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 four is, you know, obviously they can chew a copper it. But, like, this is big. It has relevant text and it can fix your draws. I'm not going to steal all of Ben's thunder here. I recommend you read the article because that's my job. And also his article is really good because he's a great writer. But I think he makes a lot of solid cases for, hey, this card's good. I honestly can't wait to read the article because it's not that I am resisting this characterization. I I quite frankly don't know what to make of this card. And a lot of times I feel obligated to put forth a take on everything. You have to have my opinion on everything. Most of the time, I just want to tell myself to shut up, stop giving opinions all the time. And that's especially true here because I just don't know. And I don't want to act like I have this card figured out. I'm not sure how impactful Scry 3 actually is. I mean, you gave a nice scenario on the draw where you have all this relevant information and you're able to adapt your entire game plan around Sphinx of Foresight. Sometimes you're going to be on the play. And does Scry 3 really matter that much beyond finding you know, whatever number of lands, that's the most common application for these pregame scries is you're trying to get your mana ratios correct, either reduce the number of lands you're going to draw or maximize them. And I'm not saying that's not super impactful. It certainly is. Is it impactful enough to bear the cost of playing a four mana four, four? I don't know. I I don't know right now. I, I think about other four drops in standard too. you know, match this up with rekindling Phoenix. It looks very silly in play. Uh, you mentioned Chupacabra. It's made to look silly again. There's there's a lot of very powerful four mana spells in the format. I'm not sure how Sphinx stacks up against them. I do absolutely recognize the value of repeated scries. That's an incredibly meaningful mechanic as you move to the late game uh, and get you to a very powerful place. So that's certainly speaking in f- favor of Sphinx. This is one I can't wait to play with. I don't know where I'm going to fall on it. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it. Again, you know, this doesn't look like the type of card that's supposed to slot into a constructed deck. I don't necessarily want to jam four into my Azorius control. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And if you're really going to kind of hype up the benefits of this pregame scry, it does seem like a card you would want in some larger number. 
So is this a card for, is it Drake's as that deck continues to get bigger and move away from the arc-like Phoenix paradigm? I don't know. Maybe. It certainly could be. Uh, but but again, there's another four drop to compare this card to in Crackling Drake, which replaces itself immediately and just has a huge, huge front side. So who knows if this is going to be able to win the competition for the four drop slot in blue decks. I'm looking forward to finding out, though. This is a strange print, an exciting print, uh, and one I definitely want to explore as time goes on. Could very easily see this card being a sideboard in the in blue control decks as both a blocker and a way to take the mirror by surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the old switcheroo in, in the yep. post-board control games. We've certainly seen it a million times. And like I said, Scry 1 is incredible in that context. It really makes a tremendous difference as you move into the late game. So I could buy that as well. And also just like if I'm in the if I'm in like a Azorius mirror or something like that, I sideboard this thing in, you know, like I get to scry three on my opening turns to make sure like I can keep my hand and like have lands coming, which are obviously the most important thing in the mirror or find right. like some other key cards. If it's in my opener, obviously, um, I don't know. There's something something's got me going about this card. OK, and that's all we have at this point, right? You just have to trust your gut. We haven't played any games and our guts are developed from, you know, for me, 20 plus years of magic at this point. And it has left me without an answer for Sphinx of Foresight. I do not have the foresight to tell you where this card is going to end up, but we will figure it out as time goes on. Only a couple cards left, Cedric, and they're not super interesting. We're, we're just looking at the lockets now. Uh, I'm glad to see the lockets back. I think they matter a lot, especially in sealed deck. As I grew to appreciate Guilds of Ravnica sealed, uh, lockets were kind of a big part of my maturation in that format. I imagine they'll have the same type of effects in this format. Unlikely to see any constructed applications, though. Yeah, I mean, lockets are just meh. Just a just a big old meh. Right, right. And of course, we get our lands. We all knew these were coming. We have Godless Shrine, Hollow Fountain, Blood Crypt, Stomping Ground, Breeding Pool, as well as the corresponding Guild Gates. These are likely the most impactful cards in the set, but Jerry and I have moved away from listing these in our top tens just because mana is everything. You know, we're entering a brave new world of standard mana bases. We're capable of a lot more. It'll be interesting to see how far decks are going to push in this new format. Are we going to see five color decks? Uh, are we going to see the Goblin Chain Whirler decks splashing both green and black? It's hard to say right now, but we're certainly capable of things we were not capable of in the last format. Yeah, I mean, glad they're all here. They all have awesome artwork. Guildgate's probably aren't going to be much of a thing. It'd be cool if Mesa Zen was brought back, but, ah, boy, other than that, you know, like, we're moving in the right direction. You know, Guilds of Ravnica looked really good, and it ended up being really good, mm-hmm. and this is also looking pretty good, man. Like, I'm excited about preview season. Uh, I'm excited that the fact that they've printed these Planeswalkers, and they're hard to analyze, and you know, we've got more spectacle and adapt and uh, presumably more gruel cards as long as I'm not here coming out. Right. So uh, I'm excited. Yeah, same. My optimism around magic is kind of at an all time high over these last few months, be it with, you know, changes to the Magic Pro League and just the quality of sets that are coming out. It's a game changer. It feels like play design has really stepped up everything surrounding these new sets. And I can't wait to start casting some of these cards. They're really exciting. Yeah, I feel the same way. Okay, so let's do a question. As you know, we always close out an episode of the game podcast with a question from one of our Patreons. So Chris Carlisle asks, is there a tool, article, or experience that has contributed the most 
to making you a better magic player. And I really wanted to ask this question while you were here this week, Cedric, because you see more magic articles than almost anyone on the planet in your <laughs> role as an editor over at Star City Games. You've, you've seen the best, you've seen the brightest. Is there something you can think of which was formative in your development as a magic player? Like just one particular article? Sure. Give us your, your all-time great. Hmm, boy. I mean, nowadays, the one article that people really go to is Reed Duke's Thoughtsy's article that we published that was mm-hmm. really good. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. I do think that article is really well done by Reed. Honestly, you know, the biggest, the things I've always drawn the most from are articles by people who are able to articulate how to approach a matchup because I think a lot of people are really, not taking a shot at anyone, but I think a lot of people are really poor at that. I think a lot of people get into this habit of just like playing games and not approaching things from, hey, this is the matchup. These are the cards that matter. These are the cards that matter a little bit less than the key players. These cards don't matter at all. This is my way that I go about winning the game. This is my secondary way to win the game. If I get into this spot, I need to start taking some risks to get back to the actual spot I'm trying to get to. Here's how I sideboard and why. This is why particular cards come in, particular cards come out. For that, Brad Nelson is very good, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to standard. But and, and that's why I think one of many reasons Brad is successful is because he's very good at coming up with game plans for matchups as opposed to just playing the games and seeing what matters. Brad is always trying to get himself into a specific position, and he's actually gotten really good at articulating how and what he wants to do to get himself in a particular position to win the game. And when you're playing Instruction Magic, frankly, that's what it's all about. That's what you're trying to do. So uh, it's not, it's for me, it's not just one particular article. We got, we obviously, you know, we have a, we have a lot of great writers, so everyone's great and everything's great. But Reed's thoughts, his article, it, it was very informative. And I think I like the way that I like a lot of the way that Brad, Jerry and Ari approach things because I, I don't like to be wishy-washy. You know, I already, I already wanted my rank. I already wanted my rant about like, I don't like hot takes. Uh, for some things, but at the same time, I, I at the same time I do like people that are definitive in their stances on things. And you know, Ari, as an example, is super definitive about like you do this because of this. This death sucks right now because of this reason. And if like you disagree, that's fine. But like Ari is no must, no fuss. This is how I feel. This is how I think. Bang, take it or leave it. And more often than not, he's right too. So I look for people who understand how the game works and can articulate it. It's so fascinating that your answer focused around basically mechanisms for delivery of magic magic strategy. And that makes perfect sense given your role, right? That's your entire thing is you just get all these different mechanisms thrown at you and you've now been able to assess what is the best way to deliver the most poignant information. And I think that's a great takeaway. It's one of the reasons I loved Jadine's farewell article and man, will I miss Jadine's writing because I think she's just phenomenal. I'm very happy she's going to work for Wizards and will have something to do with my favorite game going forward. But you're exactly right that there's just certain writers who understand the context of how they're supposed to be presenting things, how to reach the most people and to just teach most effectively. And that's key in the content that I've loved too. But I think I can call to maybe not a specific article, but a specific writer and it's going to be one that people don't talk much about these days. I talk about him all the time. <laughs> I often reference how important his articles were in 
you know, my learning process and and becoming a capable deck builder. But it's Zvi. And I, I think Zvi's early articles are foundational to the way I build decks, particularly, I think, back to his writing around building around mana bases and focusing instead on what the mana in a format is capable of, how you can maximize your mana base and starting from there. Whereas I think everyone else starts from an idea of, I want to play these cards. How do I make that work? Zvi started the opposite way. And honestly, I think both approaches have merit. But if you're not considering Zvi's approach and thinking about how to maximize mana, you're missing part of the puzzle. And starting to think about things in that fashion was a huge part of my success, not only as a constructed deck builder, but as a limited player as well, because these things matter in limited as well. What can I do with my limited mana? How far can I push it? What can my decks potentially be capable of? These are all things I consider in every single instance of deck building I do. I will also point to Zvi's article on elephant sideboarding. Uh, when people talk to me about how to become a better magic player, one of the first things I always point to is get better at sideboarding. For the limited amount of magic success I have had, I would pin a lot of it on just having better sideboard plans than my opponents, understanding my roles in post-board matchups, thinking carefully through what my goals are in post-board games. The same way you discussed Brad's approach to you know, deck building as a whole, I take that very pointed approach with my sideboard planning and thinking about what I'm going to do in post-sideboard games. So I strongly recommend people go back and check out Zvi's back catalog. It is contained on starcitygames.com. Of course, he wrote for us for many, many years. Um, and some of my favorite articles of all time were, were his pieces on all types of deck building. He's a brilliant mind. For sure. He really is. For sure. I don't think, I, I don't think if, if people have never interacted with him, and you probably have because you're in New York, I, I just don't think people, well, you were in New York, excuse me. I, I don't think people realize like he's just... He was obscenely smart. So his approaches, uh, and I used to read a lot of his articles where it was like outlandish how smart he was. Right. Zvi and I actually worked together on two for two Pro Tours, for back-to-back Pro oh. Tours. The last two Pro Tours I played, he was my teammate. Unfortunately, he was very busy at the time, as was I. And it wasn't like our constructed decks were world beaters. But just the process of working with him and, and having the back and forth, you could see how much he still knows about the game, even if his focus isn't there. He, he still has a wealth of information and those articles are very reflective of that wealth of information. Uh, so I encourage you to go check those out. And there's a whole collection of seminal articles. You've heard them all before. Who's the beatdown? Uh, all these articles that people talk fondly about, they're all worth reading. Consume everything. There's no downside to just reading everything, but those are the ones that really spring to mind when I'm thinking about the ones that were most formative in my magic career. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I forgot about good old Zvi. He was he was really good. Well, I'm glad I could jog your memory and get him back in the forefront of your brain. As is tradition when we have a guest host here on the game podcast, you get the sign out duties this week, Cedric. You're practiced now. You know how to do it. Hit us one time. That's game. That's game. That's game. That's game.
Good luck.